0: I don't see him anywhere, so I can probably just say whatever I want. Good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day uh, to all you moms. Uh, we appreciate you so much, and uh, uh, we can't express enough how important and how meaningful and precious all of the moms are here today. And uh, that is the extent of my Mother's Day sermon, uh, and I'm very sorry about that, but uh, if it means anything, I treat Father's Day the same way. So, uh... Uh, we, seriously, we really appreciate all the moms that are here. And uh, if your mom is with you, be sure to um, treat her with the love and the care that she deserves. Um, and uh, we do want to wish everybody a happy Mother's Day. Uh, with that, we're going to continue on in our study that we've been doing uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, there are only two things that are certain in life. Everybody know what those are? death and taxes. Everybody knows that. Uh, The quote is usually attributed to Ben Franklin, even though uh, he was actually quoting somebody else. He was quoting Christopher Bullock, who was an English actor back in the early 1700s, and he had put that in a letter that he wrote. Will Rogers famously said the only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets, which I kind of... Uh, agree with that. Uh, I wish I could say we were talking about death this morning, but unfortunately we're going to be talking about taxes in our study in Luke today. If you've got a Bible, if you'd like to follow along, if you'll go to Luke chapter 20, please. We've been reading the final section of Luke's account of Jesus's ministry. Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. He entered the temple. He staged a protest to forecast the temple's end, and he's been accosted by the religious leaders, who have pretty much had enough of his antics and what he's been saying, but they're impotent to be able to stop him because he's enjoying a lot of popularity by the crowds that are there at Passover right now, um, that are gathered for uh, in Jerusalem for the Passover. So last week we read a parable that Jesus told about the religious leadership comparing them to villainous farm tenants who violently tried to usurp the landowner's place and who met a violent end because of it. And uh, we took lessons from that about our own responsibility as stewards of, of God's activity in this world and, the, and, and staying on the task that was given to us. So things are heating up for Jesus in the story that we've been reading as Luke has been unfolding it for us here. Things are heating up. It's like a symphony building towards its climax, the crescendo, the the pace quickens and the tension rises in each thing that we're going to be reading here. Today, Jesus is going to have another encounter that's orchestrated by the religious leaders that's intended to get Jesus in trouble by posing to him an impossible question. Jesus evades the trap and his response actually provides us with some very important truths that... Help us understand what our priorities are as 21st century followers of Jesus in this world. So if you're there in Luke chapter 20, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 20. It says, Watching for their opportunity, the leaders sent spies, pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so that he would arrest Jesus. So the Roman governor would arrest Jesus. So Luke really pulls no punches whatsoever in his description of this scene. There's no ambiguity to this whatsoever. This is a nefarious trap. He says the religious leaders sent spies, and in the Greek the word there means someone who lies in wait to ensnare another person, like you'd ensnare an animal. And what they try to trip Jesus up and trap him with is something that might get him embroiled in, in what we would consider a political controversy at that time. They want to get, get him to say something that they can report to the Roman governor, who was Pilate at that time, to get him locked up, or better yet, to get him executed. And, and we don't want to pass over this too quickly, uh, as this is written for us. Uh, these, these dishonest spies are sent by the religious leaders. The ones who were supposed to be representing God's interests in Israel. Not, not just Israel, for the world, uh, 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 for that matter. And here they are, stooping to entrapment and deceit in an attempt to murder someone they disagree with. It's pretty profound when you think about it. But it's nothing new. I mean, this sort of thing has happened. It happened all through Israel's history as we read about it in the Hebrew Bible. It's happened all through church history. And there's a lesson for us just in this first part of what it is that Luke is is recording for us here, and that is that misplaced allegiance can make religion a dangerous force in this world. And as I said, this is no stunning revelation. Uh, I mean, all we have to do is think about how many holy wars, wars that have been described as holy wars, have been fought throughout the history of our world. I can tell you it's far too many. One is far too many. The religious leaders, you know, they didn't, they didn't start out as deceiving, murderous people. They didn't, you know, get involved in the leadership of Israel thinking, man, I am going to destroy as many people as I can, and especially not the Pharisees among them, and there were a lot of Pharisees that were part of the religious leadership at that time. The Pharisaic movement, I mean, it had noble origins. They wanted to ensure that they were taking God and his commands seriously. It was a populist revival movement that was, it was happening in Israel. But unfortunately, the commitment that they had to their own interpretations of God's commands and the zealousness that they had for separating from everything that was deemed unclean became obsessive to them. And over time, their allegiance transferred from God to their beliefs about God. Their trust was in what they knew or felt they knew instead of trusting in what would in many ways be an unfathomable God, a God who's way beyond capture by our knowledge alone. So that misplaced allegiance began reshaping them. They began to change into something else, and as we see in the text, it actually made them a dangerous force in this world, willing to go to those kinds of extreme lengths to destroy somebody they disagreed with. Now, that was them. The question always has to be, what about us? What does this mean to us? Are are we people who are willing to go to war with someone else over our views or our interpretations about God, about doctrine or cultural changes or political parties? Are we willing to humiliate and denigrate our fellow person over things like that publicly, like on social media or privately as we speak about someone else to others? Misplaced allegiance in the sphere of religion In the sphere of Christianity, we could say, let's keep it, let's keep it here, close to home, can reshape our values if we're not careful. It can make us a dangerous force in this world. And not in a good way. I've said before, I've said many times, church is a dangerous place. We come in here and, and we have a lot of trust in this. We put our trusts and hopes in, in, in the genuineness of the motives behind what it is that we do. But all of that we've seen throughout history, we see it in the news on a regular basis, can can get twisted, the, the allegiances get misplaced, and things go awry and can hurt people. I know that I myself was was a was was a victim of that sort of harm. And that's not God's intent for us. That's not God's intent for his people. That's not God's intent for the church at all. The framework that that Jesus gave us. The framework for our allegiance was provided to us in places like Matthew 22. And it's something that is probably the motto of almost any church, any given church throughout the world. And it's so simple. Love God with everything you have. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. The simplicity of that, but the the lifelong challenge that it is. That's the pattern that we're called to build our allegiances around. A commitment to God, and that commitment and allegiance to God expressed through a love for our fellow person. Love God and love people. It's not splashy, it's not sensational, but it is the way of the cross. And according to Jesus, unless we're taking up our cross to follow him, we're not really following in his patterns. We're not being his disciple unless we're following that way. So the framework that he gave us to love God, love people, those are, the, those are the points of focus for our allegiance that can keep us from becoming a dangerous force in this world. Okay, well, the secret agents, they come to Jesus, and here's what they ask in verse 21. Teacher, they said, now we know you speak and teach what's right, and you're not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay, so they come out the gate speaking flattering words. You're so honest, you're impartial, you teach God's word so faithfully, and it's not, those aren't things that they or the ones who sent them actually believed, it's just flattery used, intended to try to get Jesus off guard. You know, to, you butter somebody up and make them like, you know, hey, well, this is nice. I like hearing this. And, and then you can ensnare them is what their, their, their intent was here. So they ask this no-win question. Uh, it's, it's a politically and religiously charged question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to a pagan Roman government? Now, we have to understand this was not just a question about money. I mean, obviously money is part of it, but this wasn't just a libertarian thing of, you know, insisting that government stay away from what's mine or anything like that. I mean, sure, there was a a financial hardship that was associated with it that people were feeling the pressure of, and so that would have been part of the mix, but that was not the main intent behind the, the thing. That was not the main issue. The, the Romans had imposed what was called a poll tax, or some have called it a head tax. Basically, it's an, an amount of money that was owed to the Roman Empire just by virtue of a person living in a region. So it wasn't based on income or available resources. It was just an arbitrary sum uh, imposed by the emperor for the people of that region. In other words, so imagine there's an emperor somewhere who says, oh, you guys live in Panama City Beach. Well, you know, you're gonna to have to pay an extra $8,000 a year to, to live there. And, you know, so you gotta figure out, I gotta budget that in, and, you know, if, if life is difficult as it is, trying to figure out where that comes from, and for what? I mean, for no real reason other than that you just live there. So it was a, it, it was likely that this is the tax that's in view here because it was a wildly unpopular, uh, tax, and it was also, uh, a verdant symbol of rome 's uh, subjugation of Israel, everything about that tax was was reinforcing the idea that Israel was not sovereign in and of themselves, that there was a foreign agency that controlled them and controlled their finances. Many uh, Jewish people opposed paying that poll tax on patriotic grounds, and in fact, years earlier, from this event here, a guy by the name of Judas of Galilee. Stoked an armed tax revolt over this very tax, uh, and he was mercilessly crushed by Rome. But uh, he had a big following. There were a lot of people who who were on board with his determination to resist that tax. So here, think about the scenario: Jesus is surrounded by Galilean people who are there in Jerusalem for Passover. And we can imagine, they've got very strong opinions about this tax, about what it is that has been imposed on them. And the question was, in the minds of the average person, about Jewish faithfulness, whether or not this was being faithful to God to, to pay this tax. Because from the time of the Babylonian invasion, some 500 years before this, the people of Israel had not, for any length of time, any uh, you know long period of time, enjoyed sovereignty as a nation. One superpower after another had controlled that region of which they were a part of right up until Rome came in, when Pompey came in and and took over the region in, in Rome's name. The Jewish people, who were supposed to be the free people of God, who inhabited what was called the promised land, were not free from outside control. And this tax was a painful reminder of that, and it reinforced for them that sense of continued exile from what it is that God intended for them. Beyond that, there was the coin itself. The coin uh, had the face of Caesar stamped on it with the words, Augustus Tiberius, son of divine Augustus. What does that mean? It means, basically, if you're to pare it down into our vernacular today, it said, son of God on the front of the coin, and on the backs, on the back of it, it said, the high priest. And so, you know, son of God, high priest, it's almost as though the Romans were trying to find the most offensive terminology on their coins for the Jewish people. Everything about it screamed of paganism uh, to the Jewish mindset. So the question that hung in the air for Israel, and so this wasn't a simple little thing, just about, you know, I don't want to have to pay as much. The question that hung in the minds of the Israelites was, is it sinful for us to pay this tax and use these pagan coins? Pagan coins that fund a pagan empire that does pagan things and commits pagan atrocities around the world. Asking this question of Jesus in this public setting was, was done so in the hopes that A... Jesus would say, sure, pay taxes, it really doesn't matter anyway, don't make a fuss, and the religious leaders could then say, well, look at him, he doesn't care about Israel, he doesn't care about Israel's fidelity to God, and of course, the people who felt the sting of those taxes would also maybe feel somewhat betrayed by Jesus, if he just says, yeah, it doesn't matter, they're like, yeah, it doesn't matter to you, maybe, but it it really hurts me in in all of this, that was one hoped-for response, or B... Jesus would say, no, it's wrong to pay these taxes. You should not pay them. And then they would have something to go and accuse him of before the Roman governor Pilate. They could say, hey, Jesus, this Galilean is out there saying we shouldn't pay taxes. And remember, Judas of Galilee and the way his revolt was violently crushed by Rome is in the background of this whole question uh, of this scene here. And I'm sure that the religious leaders were hoping for the same outcome for Jesus as it was for Judas of Galilee. So the question was loaded. I mean, you can see that. They posed this question out there in this public arena, and there was no safe way to answer a question like that, unless you're Jesus. And we'll keep reading here, verse 23. He saw through their trickery, and he said, show me a Roman coin. Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesars, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. So they failed to trap him by what they said in front of the people. Instead, they were amazed by his answer and they became silent. In my imagination, Jesus drops the mic and does a moonwalk away from them. Uh, This exchange is just so much fun to me. Uh, beyond the cleverness of it, this short passage gives us so much to think about when it comes to how it is we carry ourselves, how we live as Christians. First, Jesus asks them for one of the coins in question so he can examine it. And it's easy to pass over that. But what that means is Jesus did not have one of those coins, but they did. They had one and were using one enough in commerce that they were able to readily produce it and show it to him. And if they were using Rome's currency, they had no grounds for refusing to pay Rome's tax. So it took away any higher ground sense in this argument right away that they were trying to assume with Jesus. And then he asks whose picture is on it, literally in the Greek, whose image is on the coin and the word that he uses there is significant because it's the same word in the Greek translation of Genesis 1:26 let us make man in our own image the words that god spoke in creating humanity he's forcing them to name the coin it is caesar's coin and 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 jesus then turns their either or question should we or shouldn't we into a both and answer give what bears caesar's image back to him but give what bears god's image back to him and it's such a simple saying on the surface it's you know it's like yeah that that's great but the import of what he's saying is something to really ponder amazingly enough, I mean, oceans of ink have been spilled over trying to puzzle through exactly what the ramifications are in full of what it is that Jesus is saying here. What this passage does make clear to me, though, is that if we're following Jesus's example and way of living, we see that he was neither a political revolutionary nor an ardent nationalist. What Jesus is doing transcends national lines. Jesus says, give Caesar the money that he created back to him. And that may be saying, you know, live in this world and accept that there are provisional governments in place for now. But be keenly aware that we, as God's people, are part of something much bigger uh, and totally different from the governments of this world. The religious leaders were hoping to bait Jesus into a political stance that might reveal his opposition to the state, but Jesus was not going to bite on that. And, and I don't think he was trying to say, as, as some have postulated, I, I don't think, you'll have to think it through for yourself, but I don't think he was trying to make the point that government and religion are things that we pursue separately from each other, but more like, as we read in the larger New Testament, that God is shaping his people into a model of redeemed society. The church is God's nation, God's community. It's supposed to be an anomaly on the cultural landscape that reveals what it's like when heaven and earth overlap. And that's something that that God is growing in the midst of all nations. It transcends national boundaries. It's all intermixed in this. God's raising this up among all the people of the earth. Jesus sidesteps their attempt to embroil him in a political debate And he gets at the heart of what's underlying this question. And it really has to do with proper allegiance. We talked about misplaced allegiance can make us dangerous. But what is the proper allegiance? And this is what Jesus is getting at. His answer reveals this foundational truth that can actually guide us as we navigate all the twists and turns of government's claims as well as religion's Claims on us, our calling is to give full allegiance to God alone now here 's something you may not know nearly two hundred years earlier during the Maccabean revolt, and we talked about it, if you were here when we talked about Jesus going into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, a lot of it was mirroring things the events that took place during the Maccabean revolt. Well, during that Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid occupation, there was a slogan, and you can find it. I didn't put it up on the screen for you, but if you Google First Maccabees 2.68, you'll read this slogan. It was the last words of Matthias the priest who said, give to the Gentiles what they deserve and obey the commands of God. It was a very well-known slogan at the time. And I believe Jesus is saying something that's a variation on that, but with a significant change in it. The original phrase meant repay the violence of the Gentiles with the violence that they deserve. But what Jesus is saying, this coin with Caesar's image on it, send it back where it came from. And all that that image of Caesar represents, Rome's violence, Rome's cruelty, their thirst for power, send it back where it came from. We don't want it. We don't need it. God's showing us a different way. We are loyal to the God who made us and to his purposes. We are the image bearers of God, revealing his healing and loving rule over all creation. So in my thinking, it's an answer that could indicate disdain for the powers of Rome while not saying anything that's going to be able to get him arrested. That's one way of reading it. You'll have to ponder that yourself. Image-bearing, though, is the important part of this whole scenario. What, what It's the key to Jesus' answer. Caesar's image represented his claim to authority, right? So like if... When Rome goes into an area, when when Pompey first came into Israel, first thing he did was set up Roman standards, which means he set up the eagles of Rome, uh, images there to remind everybody of who was in charge. Later on, they would build statues with Caesar's image uh, images of him. And it was always a reminder of who's in control, who's calling the shots here in this area. Rome rules here. Just look at the image. It'll prove it to you. It'll remind you of that. In the same way, humanity's first occupation, our first vocation, was to be image bearers of creator God. Let us make humanity in our own image. In other words, that we were to be representing God's loving authority over all that he created. One reason that Israel was forbidden to craft any Images of God was because God had already made an image of himself. It was humanity. We were supposed to be the image of God in this world. Now, obviously, all of us likely know the story. We fell from that place. But Jesus' answer is a reminder to us that what we hope for and work for is not going to come through the mechanics of religion nor through political power, but through God's active rule in this world. Through God's activity, both religion and civil politics have at their core the expectations of what humanity can do. If we bind bond together, we can do this. We can achieve that. We can accomplish that. If we are religious enough, we can achieve these various things. But that's the wrong focus. And it's something that the scriptures reveal to us over and over again. Zechariah 4, 6 says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. So this is priority one. God must claim our highest allegiance above religious or political affiliation. God's values and purposes have to supersede any other claim of power or authority in our lives. It comes back down to God, his purposes and his purposes alone. Yeah, well, but yeah, fine. That's nice. But what's that look like? I mean, you know, we can say that I'm loyal to God, but what does it mean? Like, what is that going to look like when I get up in the morning and I brush my teeth and I head out the door for the day? What does that mean? Well, as we noted earlier, Jesus provided us the framework through which our loyalty is expressed to God. Matthew 22, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? In other words, what is the commandment that, that sh- should be molding our allegiances to God? What sums up the law and the prophets. What gets repeated over and over again in different variations through almost every author of the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, for wanting to understand how we express our allegiance to God, it's revealed in our love for Him and is usually expressed, that love for him is usually expressed by our love for our fellow human, our fellow person. This is how we are image bearers of God in this world. In a world full of conflict and chaos, in a world that's constantly biting and tearing one another apart, we are called to represent our love for the one who made us by showing that love for our fellow human being in the life that we live so the question that we have to grapple with is are we pursuing that calling as we look at our lives what fuels our passion what fuels our dedication to god what are the things that define us when somebody says oh hey rob he's a christian what do they know about me what do they what do they think of first what is it that he's passionate about I mean, look, (laughs) we're all gonna have passions and different and you know, somebody can look at me and say, Oh yeah, well Rob loves comic books, that's for sure, you know. Okay, true. Rob does enjoy comic books. Rob seems kinda old to enjoy comic books. Yeah, we're all worried about it. But (laughs) it's the reality of it. But beyond that, when we're trying to understand Rob as a Christian, what are we thinking about? What comes to our minds? What and I'm not asking you to do that, I'm just saying these are the questions that we pose to ourselves. As I think about this, what is it? What do I want to be known for? What did Jesus tell us is going to be the, the hallmark of how it is that we're identified as his followers? They're going to know your Christians by your doctrinal fidelity? They're going to know your Christians because you've, you've excluded the right kinds of people? They're going to know your Christians by what, guys? By your love for one another, which has to extend beyond just, okay, well, I can love this person because they're a Christian, but that person, ah, no. No, obviously, that's going to extend to all people, to all that were created in the image of God. All of us, all of us created in the image of God, image bearers of God, lost from that vocation, being called into reconciliation with God. You know, all of the different things that we can get ourselves excited about, doctrinal ideas and boundaries that we cling to. Sometimes it's just a desire to, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, it's a desire to prove that we're right and those other bozos are wrong. But I would, I tend to believe that Jesus would sweep all of those things aside as being unworthy of our, of our affection, being unworthy of our passion. Love God with all that we are and demonstrate that love by loving the people around us, the people he created, the people he's already expressed that he loves. God so loved this world that he gave his one and only unique son that whoever would believe on him would not die but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. So, you know, maybe you're thinking, you know, Rob, I've heard you say this. You say this a lot. And, you know, granted, I do. But, you know, you might be saying, but, Rob, I've tried this. I'm no good at it. (laughs) I'm no good at loving the people around me. I'm no good at loving unlovable people. I know. (laughs) I'm not either. Nobody is. None of us are good at this. This isn't something that we're going to be able to achieve on our own. This isn't something that we're going to work up. You're not going to come here and hear this today and think, okay, got to get busy. Got to, you know, work this. I got to love. That's not, that's not how it works. This is something that is shaped in us by God's spirit. It's a high calling. It's one that Jesus is going to enable in us through his spirit as we yield to that shaping process. The, The technical terminology for it is that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit reshapes us into people who have different values. It's something that takes time and takes focus, learning what his values are, learning from his word. As we read the stories, we read the narrative, what it is that he intends so that we can reflect those things into our world. So let's attend to that high calling of being image bearers of God, remembering what it means when we when we carry ourselves through this world, who it is that we're representing. Let's see what a difference it can make in this broken place as we pursue our allegiance to the one true king who loves us. Right on? Very cool. Will you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for for what it is that you reveal to us through it. And all of us here, Father, we need your enabling. We need your help. We need you to shape us into who we were meant to be. And we ask you to do that. Lord, you know very well that we fall well short in our own efforts of being able to rightly reflect who you are in this world. But we know that you, by your Spirit, can draw out what's best in us. And so I pray that you do that for each person here, Father. Draw out what's best. Lord, uh, we pray for all the moms and mothers-to-be that are here with us today. We thank you for what it means to us that family has uh, been part of the great gift that you've given to us as the human race. We thank you for all of these moms. We pray that your blessing is upon them. We pray that you encourage and comfort, that you wrap your arms of love around each and every one. And We pray all of these things today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: the fire that once burned bright and clear replace the lamp of my first love that burns with holy fear I want to take your First, help me just to live it, Lord. And when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown. For my reward is giving, glory. to take your word. Well, I want to take your word and shine it all around. But first help me just to live in Lord. And when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown for oh, my reward is giving glory want to take your word. Well, I want to take your word and shine it all around. But first, tell me just to live it, Lord. And when I'm doing well, tell me to never seek a crown for my reward. Your beauty.
0: us and guide us through this day, through this week. We pray, Father, that we're able to reflect the glory of your word into the world where we live. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, We're going to speak this blessing on each other before we bail out of here. Reminder that if you haven't been baptized and you'd like to be baptized, you can sign up at the back uh, over by the info hub or you can go online and sign up. But uh, we're looking forward to that. We've got a couple people getting baptized next week, so we encourage you, too, to make plans to go out to Rick Seltzer Park and join us uh, as we do that. So let's speak this together. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you on your left and on your right, both in this world and in this world. And the one to come. Go in peace and happy Mother's Day, you children of God.